0: All right, well, good morning, y'all. So I kind of have to do this first, get this out of the way. You may have uh, read elsewhere in scripture the danger and the warning of making a rash vow. I did such a thing on Wednesday night. Wednesday night, the Seattle Sounders in the first leg of the Champions League final were down one to nothing in Mexico. And I was beside myself and desperate for a victory. And so I made a rash vow and I said, Sounders FC, if you come up with the result from this game, I promise you, I will wear this beauty in the pulpit on Sunday morning. So behold but I also realized that wearing this for the duration of the message is going to be a bit distracting so thus the sweater <laughs> see, the concern is that since I post that to Twitter there might be folks who will check up on me to see did he actually do it and in case you're wondering, who do we blame for Carl wearing that shirt? I like to identify uh, Ken and Jennifer Brekke. Uh So thank you for this gift. Ken's like hiding now. Where'd he go? Oh, there you are. So prayers are appreciated for this coming Wednesday night, because I'm afraid I might make another rash vow in case things get desperate again. This morning we're going to cover a lot of material in Mark chapter 6. And I will tell you that this message started out one way and then it got shifted to another way. And I would start by asking you this question, do you remember the parable of the soils? Because it's going to play a part in how best for us to understand. Maybe not how best, but one way for us to understand what's happening in this passage in Mark chapter 6. If you remember the parable of the soils, you're going to see its application in relatively close to a real life form. As a reminder, here are the four different soils, the path, where the word just never takes root. It gets trampled on and never has a chance to grow. There is the rocky soil. Those where the seed is planted, it begins to grow, but then it's choked out and it falls away due to trials. Then there's the thorny soil, where again, it begins to grow and then the cares of this world choke out its life and it goes away. And then the last soil that Jesus described for us in Mark 4 in that parable of the soils is the good soil, where the seed is planted and it grows and it bears much fruit, Our understanding of these soils will help us as we navigate through this particular passage because we're going to encounter these soils. And Jesus encounters the first of those soils in his hometown. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus has an encounter with a group of people in his own hometown whose hearts are very much like the path. Nazareth was a small backwater town of maybe 500 people during Jesus' time. Everybody in town would have known who Jesus was. And when Jesus returns, they refuse to believe. But it was worse than just being unwilling to listen and unwilling to heed Jesus' instruction. It actually gets a whole lot worse. He was questioned. He and his mother were insulted. When they said, isn't this the son of Mary? In Jewish culture of the day, they would have identified him as being the son of the father, not of Mary. And there was still kind of a brewing sense that perhaps, just maybe perhaps, Jesus' birth was illegitimate. And so it's taking a shot at his mom as well as him. His familiarity was then used against him. This is just this ordinary car- carpenter. Who in the world does he think he is coming back here and teaching us these things? And ultimately, as it says, they took offense and he was rejected. This is people who are, whose hearts are like the path. It's hard and impenetrable and the seed is just never going to bear fruit there. But Jesus' response to this is both fascinating and it's instructive. Now I would have you pay attention to what happens in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Because it may help you as you consider what happens when you are sharing the truth of God's word. Look at it again. He marveled because of their unbelief. And depending on your translation of the Bible, there might even be a significant space between the end of that sentence and the beginning of the next sentence and he went about among the villages teaching this challenges us in how we go about doing evangelism should we linger long with people and answer questions should we be persistent and going after people over and over again who refuse to believe the gospel that is one way of doing it and there may be room and space to do that what well, we see from jesus here That sometimes the best thing to do is to just move on. How do you know which to do? Well, I'm going to give you a secret. You ready? Say yes. Yes. There is no secret. (laughs) How do you know whether to linger long and be persistent? And when do you know to say, okay, I've done what I can here, move on. You're going to have to trust the Spirit working in you, leading and guiding you. There's not a formula that tells us how many opportunities we should take to share with somebody who is obviously recalcitrant and is uninterested. We're not given that formula. But neither are we given a formula for saying, okay, only do it once and then walk away. But what we're seeing here from Jesus is that there is times, is times, let's use proper English, there are times when maybe the best answer is to move on. Some of you have been sharing the gospel with friends who you know have not just been uninterested, they've been downright hostile. And perhaps you're plagued by the guilt of, I need to be the one to do this. If Jesus was unable and unwilling to convince those in his hometown, who do you think you are? The pressure is off. We're going to get to that in just a few moments as well. Because Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for going out and doing the same thing that he's been doing. And he's going to prepare his disciples for encountering these different kinds of soil, starting in verse 7. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And healed them. What were the disciples tasked with doing? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is our message. Jesus made it clear at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, where we started, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel this is what the primary task of disciples is whether you were a disciple who is walking with Jesus or whether you are a disciple in the year 2022 our responsibility as disciples is to go out and proclaim that people should repent but Jesus anticipates that not everybody's going to respond the pressure is off of us I think many of us get confused or discouraged when it comes to sharing the gospel because we're convinced that this is our message and it's not our message. Whose message is it? Jesus's. And whose authority is it? Okay, now we're playing the guessing game and I'm a little concerned. <laughs> whose authority is the message? It's Jesus's. Is this your message? No if they reject what you share, are they rejecting you? No. They are rejecting the authority and the message of the Savior. But again, Jesus' response in advance is both fascinating and instructive. Here we go. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, you might think, well, duh. (laughs) Stay there until you leave. Well, He's sending a message there. Hey, wherever they will let you in, stay there. Don't wait for a better offer and then say, oh, okay, I got a better offer over here. Stay there. And if any place will not receive you and if they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust. There was an ancient practice that when people would leave a Gentile territory before going back into Jewish territory to make sure they didn't pollute the community, they would shake off the dust from their feet before entering back into Jewish territory. And so what he's saying, is like, this is a measure of judgment. But he's also saying, it's not on you. Some people are going to hear and they will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The results are not up to you. Some people will not hear, and they will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. The results are not up to you. The pressure is off. I don't want to make light of it, but at the same time, it might be helpful. We are in sales, not in management. This is ultimately Jesus' problem to deal with, to change minds and to change hearts. The pressure's off. You are called to be a storyteller. The story of how God has transformed your life through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How your life has been transformed by grace and by mercy. And to point to the one who did all the work. It's not your job to convince people. That's the realm of the Holy Spirit. So, can we allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants? And then, can we go into these situations with maybe a bit more confidence than we currently do? Jesus is warning his disciples there's going to be people who reject this message. And again, there's that fine line of trying to figure out well, do we linger long and persist, or do we kind of pack up our stuff and go? Again, the secret is there is no secret. You're going to have to trust the Spirit's work in that. But recognize that the results are not up to you. Jesus did not send them out demanding results. He couldn't because he already acknowledged the fact that, hey, there's going to be people that just don't listen to you. Instead, he's called his disciples to be storytellers and to point to the Savior. That is your responsibility. And if people hear that and respond to it, praise God, you didn't do it. And if people hear it and reject it, praise God, you didn't do that either. Now, the passage that we're in ends with kind of a, a weird inclusion like, wow, okay, Mark, what are you doing here? But it fits into the bigger theme of what's going on here. It's a graphic account, but it's also a warning that illustrates what happens when you encounter people who are thorny soil. And there's also a little bit of a preview of, um, of the pathway as well. Here's the thorny soil from Mark chapter 4. Okay, because I want you to keep this in your mind as we look at what's going to happen in the rest of Mark chapter 6. In the parable of the soils, Jesus described it this way. Other ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world... And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You got the thorny soil in your mind, right? Just just play along with me and just pretend. Okay, good. So keep that in your mind as we go through what's going to happen starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Here's what's going on. Jesus has sent out his disciples. The disciples are now casting out demons or healing people. Word gets back to Herod. Herod's responsible for this region. He hears the message and he starts freaking out. But wait a minute. Why is John the Baptist dead and why was he beheaded? So Mark does us a favor and he takes us back to something that happened earlier, like a little flashback, flashback to bring the story so we understand what it is that's happened. Verse 17. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, I think we can agree with that. It is wrong for you to have your brother's wife. You may not marry your sister-in-law. Verse 19. And Herodias, the wife... It's not a typical name, just want to clarify. This is a woman. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod really liked John. He was confused by John, was mystified by John, but enjoyed hearing him and protected John, despite Herodias' plea, you have to kill this man. Herodias clearly has a seared conscience, is not the least bit bothered by her gross sexual immorality and clear breaking of the law. And her answer is, well, I'll just get rid of the evidence wants to destroy John. But Herod would not go along with it and protected him. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, I'm not suggesting I support this, but just know there's a view out there that says this is why you shouldn't have a birthday party, because there's only two places in Scripture where birthday parties are mentioned, and this is what happened at one of them. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, see the danger of rash vows. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's not literally half of the kingdom. It's just showing, hey, I'm just here. I want to make this as extravagant as I possibly can. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? Oh, no. And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. In this passage, we see both the path and the thorny soil at work. Herodias represents the path. Heart was so hardened, unwilling, unyielding to truth, unwilling to repent. And we see Herod. The words from John had begun to grow. And he enjoyed John, and yet the cares of this world took over. The description in verse 26 the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. He was so concerned about his own image. How will this make me look? I've made this grand promise to this girl. And I made it, this promise in front of all of my friends and nobles and military commanders. If I go back on my word, how will that make me look? Here we was much more interested in status, position, to be looked at as magnanimous and generous. So much so that it overtook his capacity to reason well and to say this is wrong. He became the thorny soil. But what is it about John that was so problematic for Herodias? All John asked her to do was Repent. That's been the story of John's entire ministry, which is a preview of Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Guess what? Not everybody likes to repent. Mark 1, 14 and 15, After John was arrested, now we know why he was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're beginning to see that there's a connection between being asked to repent and the offensiveness of that. We saw the actual word used in Mark 6, 3 and 4 they took offense at him. Partly because of who he was. Partly because of the fact that they were unprepared that this carpenter that they'd known is now teaching with great wisdom. But since Jesus' ministry began with repentance, certainly there was a message of repentance that he was giving into his hometown. They were offended. Now here's where... It gets really interesting, and we get to have fun with language. They took offense at him. That word offense is the Greek word skandalizomai, which means become filled with disgust or revulsion for something or for someone. That's the verb form. There's a noun form of it, which is skandalon. A cause of displeasure, offense, thing that offends, a stumbling block. The word that's used to describe how they felt about Jesus is this word scandalizami. Doesn't take you too long to figure out, oh, that's where we get our English word scandal from. But the noun form of that word gets really, really interesting. Because "scandalon" not only is this noun where you know it's a cause of displeasure, but it's also a word that they would use to describe stones, that were not suitable for building. If it wasn't going to be useful, they would throw it out. It was scandalon. It was something just wasn't going to work. And boy, does that make it even more interesting. That the scandalon that is tossed out because it's just not going to fit is the exact description of Jesus. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus later on quotes Psalm 118. Here's a preview for a few weeks when we get to Mark 12. Jesus shares the parable of the tenants. And then at the end, he says, have you not read the scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. See, this idea that once again they're wanting to get rid of him. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, and his tremendous sermon. Describes it this way, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation and no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need to start making this connection between the offense of the gospel. And this is one of these things where is really dangerous to do because you could like, take me out of context and ruin me in no time flat. But the gospel is offensive. Think about what the gospel is saying. The gospel is saying that individuals are so wrecked by sin, they are so bad that God had to kill his son, In order to cover up that sin. Tell me anything more offensive than that. That you are so bad that an innocent man had to die in your place. You are so bad there was nothing that you could possibly do to fix yourself. So God had to kill his son to cover you. The gospel is offensive. But... But the gospel gives life. We should not be surprised when we share the gospel with people who have never heard it before. And they come away offended. We shouldn't be shocked by that any longer. Can we just dismiss the surprise part of it? Because what we're saying to them is, you know, you're a pretty bad person. And you're kind of hopeless. And there's nothing that you can do about that. If I'm an unbeliever who's hearing that for the very first time, I'm probably asking lots of questions. Starting with, how dare you? Who do you think you are? And then you can imagine the rest of the questions after that. So let's stop being surprised that people don't immediately say, oh, well, thank you. This is what I've been looking for. Now, does that happen occasionally? Yes. But most times when we start there, we're telling people, you're a sinner. That's Offensive language. But, but, the gospel gives life. 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, how do we get Somebody from that place of seeing it as folly and changing their minds to seeing it as power. Here's the thing, we don't. That is not our job. Our job is to tell a story. The story of God's good grace and mercy. The story of God's forgiveness for sinners like us through the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus at the cross. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, scandalon, to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God people are going to be offended by the gospel. And if people are going to be offended, please let it be because the gospel is offensive, not because you were offensive. There's a big difference between the two. Let the gospel do the work of offending. But don't be surprised when offense is taken. And don't be surprised when rejection taken happens because remember it's not up to you but God has a weapon that he uses and that weapon has a name and that name is the Holy Spirit the only way to explain how somebody goes from thinking that the cross is the foolishness of the world and to believing it is power and life is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit consider the ministry of Paul Paul's entire ministry was built on destroying the church. He was a Middle Eastern terrorist. How do you explain how a guy like that, who was really good and very successful at his job, suddenly becomes... A follower of Jesus and probably the greatest church planter we've ever known. How do you explain that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. How do you explain how you were an enemy of God, thought the cross was ridiculous, and now have become an obedient, faithful follower of Christ? How do you explain that? It's the work of the Spirit. So we preach Christ, and we preach Him crucified, and we allow the Spirit to do His work, the only He can do. Only the Spirit of God can transform minds and hearts. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, didn't set them out with the job of changing minds and hearts. He sent them out with a message of repentance. That is our message. Our message is not, God will give you a better life. God will make all your dreams will come true. God will do this and that and the other thing for you. No, our message is a message of repentance. And that God delights in forgiving sinners. That is our message. Message And when we come to this table at communion, that's what we celebrate. There's nothing magical in the elements. It's a remembrance that Jesus Christ came with a message of repentance and rescued sinners like us. And so we come to this table with a deep sense of reverence and respect. But at the same time, we come with a whole heaping amount of celebration that God in Christ would forgive and redeem us. Us, Those who were opposed to him, he has welcomed, he has converted, he has transformed from the inside out and made us his own. His adopted sons and daughters, and so we celebrate that. So this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to worship with us through communion. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, what we would ask you to do is please allow the elements to slide by. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet... We would instead ask you to consider the truth claims of who Jesus is and what he has done. So in a few moments, we're going to pass out these elements and we'll share together. And my prayer is that as we do so, we will do so with a spirit of remembrance and respect, but also with celebration, but added to that, a renewed desire to go out into the world and to share this glorious message that Christ died for sinners, to forgive them, to redeem them, and to secure them for eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. We thank you that it still speaks today. And Father, I pray that in this room and those who might be watching at home, they would truly see the cross as being the power of God to rescue sinners, to redeem sinners. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through a simple act of faith in the risen Christ, our forgiveness is secured, our eternity is secure. So, Father, now we come to this table, mindful of what it took to secure our forgiveness and also ready to celebrate that you did it on our behalf. We pray you would meet with us in these next few moments, in the stillness and the quietness of our hearts. We thank you for the gift of a Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.